This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of the Pre Roma. The special features before us in this series are the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and if those of you who are listening care to join us, will you read together with us Psalm 72. Well, this evening we are bringing this series which has been lasting so long under this title Three Roma to an end. But it's only the series that's coming to an end because strictly speaking this title, The Fullness, governs the whole scripture from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation and beyond. So there are some scriptures that go beyond the end of Revelation. But it doesn't seem wise to have a series of studies that are being recorded. Uh, some people may be rather staggered if they see they've got hundreds of records all on one subject, so that we shall be giving them, giving them the same subject under different titles. It will come to the same thing in the end, because ultimately Christ is the fullness and in him it dwells, and as long as we preach him we must touch this great goal of the ages continually. Now with regard to the series that has just been before us, have been very controversial. And I do hope that you will have a certain amount of sympathy in this sense, that I'm, I'm sure that a pioneer will always do one thing, whatever else he doesn't do. He'll make mistakes. You see, he'll make mistakes. That's, I'm morally certain, is true in this case. If I had to wait until I'd sorted out every problem and got every answer, well, I don't think we'd ever start it. I don't think so. We walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident the book is true, even though we may not be able to construe it as we would like. There are some things, however, that have come out in our study of this question, next question of the character of the millennium, that I think cannot be challenged. And that is that the book of the Revelation is particularly addressed to the overcomer in those churches. Not merely the, the two chapters that are devoted to the churches. What thou seest, write in a book and send it. And the whole book of the Revelation impinges upon the closing uh, years of uh, this evil age the terrific pressure under which those people of God will be found and the rewards and the forfeitures that will accrue. Uh, so we are passing on now this evening to just one further consideration, not exactly in the book of the Revelation but associated with it, the typical character of the three kingdoms with which the kingdom section of Israel commences, Saul, David and Solomon. When we looked at the um, when we looked at the question of the pleroma at the beginning, however long ago that is, I can't quite remember. We started the subject, I know, by referring to our Lord's use of the homely symbol of a patch 
in a garment that had been torn. That is the way in which the word pre-Roma enters the New Testament. But of course we mustn't limit the, the meaning, strictly speaking, to patching torn garments. But it does give you the idea that the pre-Roma was something that was going to rectify, and more than rectify, the rent that we observe in Genesis 1 verse 2, when the earth became without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And so, for the, fir- for the um, closing study of this series, we're going to look at these three typical characters. Now, there is an objection which has been made, and it's often made, uh, that um, the particular objection was that we could not possibly use the kingdom of Solomon as a type of the kingdom of Christ. Because Solomon went very far astray, he got tangled up with heathen wives, they involved him in idolatry, and there were many other unsavory things. But of course, that would rule out David too, because David was guilty both of murder, of adultery, and a betrayal that was very, very gross indeed. And it would leave, it would rule out Adam, because Adam brought sin and death into this world, he fell. And yet we are told distinctly that Adam was a figure or a type of him that was to come. And Christ is said to be the second man and the last Adam. So that you see, we don't look at the individual character of the person who is set forth as a type. We look at the thing as a whole. We are all prepared to discover that the type can never be as good and as great as the original, otherwise it it wouldn't be a type. And so there's no need for us to exclude that which is in any measure faulty, for finding fault with the Old Covenant, God found fault with the Old Covenant that he made. He said that it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, and yet you couldn't possibly do without the teaching of sacrifice in type and shadow in the Old Testament. We couldn't set that aside. Well now, we first of all deal with Saul, because that is a feature that is sometimes forgotten. Saul comes before David. Cain was not the one who was slain, but Abel. God is not always taking the first place. That's a strange thing, isn't it? He's not always the first. He can wait. And he's giving an opportunity for man just to see how far he will go. And then you know there is this system of teaching which is preparing the minds of many of God's people for a kingdom to be upon this earth before the millennium is set up and before Christ actually returns. Well, that's based upon a few slender packages and a good deal of accommodation before you could fit them in. But I think the serious thought is this, that there is to be a kingdom set up upon this earth before Christ returns. And its slogan, as far as I gather from the epistle to the Thessalonians, 
Its slogan is peace and safety. I think I've seen those words in the headlines of newspapers. Crying out for peace and safety. Of course, if you translate safety, security, it won't make any difference. So that you see, it's a great possibility that a child of God may be preparing some of his followers to accept the false kingdom as the premillennial kingdom. If that is so, what a dreadful consequence. The book of the Revelation gives us a kingdom and a king before Christ returns, but he's the anti-Christian kingdom, and he is more or less set before us in the story of Saul. Should we just collect together a few features about the kingdom that is a type or a foreshadowing of the anti-Christian kingdom that will anticipate the coming of Christ. 1 Samuel chapter 8 Here we have in uh, chapter 8 verses 4 to 9 the reason why Israel began to ask for the king and it's a sad reason. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. You see, that was the bit. The sons walk not in the ways. Verse 3. They turned aside after Lucas and took bribes and perverted judgment. Oh, what a dreadful thing this must have been for Samuel, that man of God, to discover that his sons were living such loose lives betraying all the truth that he had stood for, and that because his sons were so outrageous, they came to Samuel and said, we'll, we'll have a king, we don't want these anymore. Oh, what a failure of the best of us is suggested here. And they said, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us, notice this, like all the nations. You see, they were a distinct people, called out from all people to be separated unto God. They were even told to wear a ribbon of blue in their garments, ever to remind them that they were a separated people. And here they say, make us a king that we may be like to the nations. Oh, how they'd come down, haven't they? And here's a point I would like to suggest to you. One of these suggestions that may not be fully proved, I can just suggest. The first king and the first kingdom that's mentioned in the Bible is Babel, Nimrod. You get no suggestion of a king or a kingdom until Babel has a king and commences a kingdom. Now I believe you'll agree with me that when that if there had been no sin in the world, there would have been no priesthood, there would have been no altar, there would have been no sacrifice, and at long last, when all sin is removed, we'll be getting anticipated in the New Jerusalem, I saw no temple therein, 
that was gone. If there's no, no distance between a believer and his God, if all are perfectly reconciled, then the sacrifices cease and the priest ceases. Is it also true about the king and the kingship? Is the ideal of God a king and a kingdom? We may speak about he's the eternal everlasting king, that's all right, but when the goal of the ages is reached and the kingdom is presented to the Father, it doesn't then seem to suggest that he's going to be a king with subjects. He's going to be the father with his redeemed family. So that even the introduction of the word king and kingdom into Israel may have been a very strong departure from that peculiar calling that they ought to have been able to represent but didn't. Then after that, you see, when Satan makes his move, then God makes his. Satan made his move and stirred these people up and they got Saul for their king. Then God anointed David so that he would have his counter move to follow. So we've got this um, 1 Samuel 8, verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So you see, it was a, it was a serious thing, this, this choice they made. They rejected not merely Samuel because of his wicked sons, but they rejected the Lord. They were ceasing to be in harmony with his will. And so it says in uh, verse 10, and Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people, that asked him of him a king. And he warned them. He said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariot, and so on. We are told in chapter 9 that this there was a man who had a son named Saul, verse 2. He was a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. For his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. That was a pretty good description of, of a man, wasn't it? Especially in days when a king had to be somewhat of a typical leader. Goodly, goodlier, and uh, there was not, not a person to match it. And uh, when he was approached by Samuel with regard to this question of being king, he manifested a fair amount of humility. Verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Well, that sounded splendid, didn't it? He didn't say, oh, of course, we are the people. No, he said, oh, no, you're picking on one who's the least family in the smallest tribe. And yet, friends, haven't you met sometimes a person who somehow so overdoes the humility side of it that you just wonder a little bit? Humility is a lovely thing. 
And here's this man taking that humble position. But when you see the end of this man, you wonder how far it was deeply rooted, how far it was superficial. We find the Spirit comes upon this man. And in chapter 10, verse 11, it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is this that is come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And he was made king, and for a certain period he did well. Then there began to be manifested those traits in his character which ultimately led to a suicide's death. The last thing that he did was to resort unto wizards and witches because the Lord had rejected him. What a sad end. Now that's the first king that reigned over Israel and reigned for 40 years. Well, I don't want to spend all our time on the false one, but I thought we ought to at least include it. Now, there's not much difficulty in believing from the testimony of Scripture that David was a type of the true king. We come to the 1 Samuel chapter 13, and it says in verse 1, Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, then a movement was made. He hadn't reigned very long, had he? And you remember how he failed to obey the command of Samuel? And in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 13, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon, his, upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. It seems a very ruthless way to deal with this man. But God knows the heart and knows his purpose. So he hadn't reigned very long before the Lord chose this other man. Well now the choice of this man is given in 1 Samuel 16. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. So he went. And you remember how when he came, he said that he wanted to see these sons of Jesse. Verse 6, and it came to pass, when they were come, he looked upon Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, So even Samuel had to be instructed and rebuked, look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature. You see, goodly man was chosen, man head and shoulders above the rest, and he says, Samuel, you're going to starve again, are you? Here's this one, you can say, oh, this is the Lord's anointed. No. 
Because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance. But the Lord looketh on the heart. Isn't that good? Then Jesse called Abinadab. And he called the other sons. Until they said, well, what are we going to do now? None of these are the Samuel said unto Jesse, verse 11, Are here all thy children? And he said, Oh, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he's keeping sheep. Samuel said unto Jesse, Stand and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and good to look at, or look to. So you see, there's a correction there. It doesn't mean to say because one person is rejected because he was good looking that the best of the uh, Lord's ministers have all got to be frights and, you know, I can't talk much, I know. But there it is. It doesn't matter two hoots what the colour is there or whether you've got any or too much. It doesn't matter. The Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance. And that includes all sorts of qualifications that people run after. The Lord looks upon the heart. And he saw something in that young lad which not naturally his brothers didn't see and which his old father didn't see. And he said, here's a man after mine own heart. And said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then we have the story of how presently in 2 Samuel, we must go on because of length of time, 2 Samuel chapter 2 we have the anointing or the acceptance by Judah of David as the king of Judah. You must remember, he was first of all king over Judah and then king over all Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 2 And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Go up unto Hebron. And then we're told in verse 4, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They anointed David king over the house of Judah. Then, when we look at the fifth chapter, we read these words. 2 Samuel 5. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Do notice this, friend, that it's more common in the Old Testament to speak about being thy bone and thy flesh than thy flesh and blood. We nearly always speak about our own flesh and blood, and that is used in the New Testament. But the general use is my flesh and my bone. You remember when Adam was presented with his wife, by God, he looked at her and he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I only mention that because some have tried to build a doctrine on the statement of our Lord in resurrection said to his disciples, um, a spirit hath not flesh and bones as he has seen me have. So therefore they go and build a doctrine on the fact that blood is left out. Well then I say, well they are build a doctrine on the on the other side, and say that when Adam looked at Eve, he said, you're a bit anemic already, because he never mentioned blood, you see. Flesh and bone means, 
identity and relationship. It's an integral statement, just as surely as flesh and blood. And it's just a matter of idiom. An idiom is a way of speech that belongs to one people, little different from speech of others. So, here they say, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, thou shalt feed my people Israel, thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So, we are told that he was anointed king over all Israel, verse 3. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah 7 years and 6 months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and 3 years over all Israel and Judah. And there's a little hint there for those who are working out chronology, because the one who wrote the book of Samuel, he could add up, oh yes, he could add up and make this a little bit more than the 40 years, because he was seven years and six months, added to 33, and yet it all comes to 40. Now that's scriptural reckoning. You don't reckon the odd months in a king's reign ever. Because if you do, you'll find all your chronology goes wrong. But if you always leave out the odd months and start the other king with the, give him all the benefit of it, if he's only halfway through the year, it doesn't matter, you'll find that all the chronology fits. Certainly just in passing I mention that because we've got enough without dealing with chronological difficulties. Well now, still because of time, let's go on to Samuel, uh, Solomon. Uh, you remember when later, almost at the end of his days, David planned and desired to build a house for God? How the Lord said to him, it's very good of you, David, to think of this. It's right to be in your heart. But he said, you've been a man of war from your youth up. You won't do it. You'll have the plans given you and you'll make the collection and you, you'll give of your own proper good as he did. But your son Solomon, who's going to follow you, he'll build the temple. Well, there you've got the two kingdoms. The millennial kingdom is ruled over by the David who was a man of war. You remember in Revelation 19, he came to make war. He rules with a rod of iron. And then it's followed by the day of God, when the temple side of it and the peace side of it can now be developed and pursued. So Solomon succeeds David in that sense. 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 30. 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 30. Oh, in verse 28, Then King David answered and said, Call me Bathsheba. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore and said, As the Lord liveth, that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead, even so will I certainly do this day. So Solomon is confirmed in the kingship. Well now we're going to read just one or two passages which give you the character of Solomon's kingdom and its sort of typical foreshadowing of the greatness of the kingdom 
of the Lord himself. 2 Chronicles chapter 9 verse 20. Two Chronicles chapter nine verse twenty. And all the drinking vessels of King Solomon were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was not anything accounted of in the days of Solomon. You see, now we. I think I could find half a crown or two shilling pieces in my pocket, but as far as I know, that little bit of metal is not worth much more than a penny. We used to have it, so that it was genuine silver. But in Solomon's day, silver wasn't counted anything at all. You see, gold. And you remember in Psalm 72, I shall bring unto him the gold of Sheba. It's only typical, but it shows you that here we have a kingdom which is in its sort of prosperity, foreshadowing the reign of the Son of God. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 verse 9, 2 Chronicles chapter 1 verse 9, we have this statement. Well, I think we'll go back a little bit into verse 7, 2 Chronicles 1 7. In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. That's a very solemn moment if it ever happens to us, isn't it? To have to decide. We've got now an opportunity of asking for that thing which is upon in our hearts and minds most. You know, it's even penetrated into the folklore and the fairy tales. I know some people don't think fairy tales ought ever to be read, but Aesop's fables and all the others were only ways of teaching by parable and picture. And you know, quite a number of stories, ostensibly for children, but really for grown-ups, are based upon the idea that somebody had three wishes. And before you read the story, you know what's going to happen. They first of all wish for something. And then... They have to spend the last wish that they've got in getting rid of it all and they're back where you were before. Lost everything. And you say, yes, and that's true of old so-and-so. Yes, friends, look out, it may be true of you too. You see, here it is. Now Solomon's got this put before him. Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed me great mercy. Hast showed great mercy unto David my father and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over the people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now there's a figure of speech. But here's a, a, a king who's reigning not over a tiny little handful of people, but it can now be said like the dust of the earth for multitude. And that is anticipating the day when Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the earth with fruit. In that day when the true Solomon reigns. Because you know, when the uh, dreadful days of the anti-Christian persecution are over, it says the nations are those that are left after those terrific wars. So there'll be a decimation among the nations and Israel will begin to take their place in a sense that they've never been able to do before. So here we have the dust of the earth. 
And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 verse 12, we have another statement. Oh, I think we might as well read and see uh, what he asked for. So he said, give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? And God said to Solomon, because this was in thine heart, that thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honour, nor the life of thine enemies. You see, he could have asked for those. One of the things that he might have asked for, neither yet has asked for long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people, over whom I have made thee king, Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honour, such as none of the kings that have, that have had, that have been before thee, neither shall there be any after thee that have the like. Here he is, in isolation, in his splendour. And isn't it fine to see that because he chose wisdom, God gave him the rest. And that's in harmony with the teaching of the New Testament. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be thrown in. As I've said before, and I say it again, if in my little prayer before the Lord, I'm so concerned about something to do with the work or whatnot, I get up from my knees and I start my work, I think, oh, I never asked for so-and-so. I say to myself, well, that doesn't matter because you'll throw that in. You see, if I put first the things of, of his truth and and then I go and forget something for my own personal needs. He won't say, well, you never asked for it. He says, I'm only too glad you didn't. You see? It's putting the first things first. And so Solomon did that here. Well then, we have in 1 Kings, chapter 4, his title. Or what approximates to a title. 1 Kings 4. Uh, just for a moment, uh, for 21. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms. Solomon reigned over all kingdoms. Well, if a Solomon reigns over all kingdoms, it's only another way of saying he's king of kings. That's the character of Christ when he reigned. From the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. So here we have the fulfilment of the prayer in Psalm 72. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends, our version says, of the earth. It could be the ends of the land. And they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Then, of course, we could dwell, but we won't, upon the failure of Solomon. But our Lord has spoken about him even though he failed so signally. He said, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these flowers of the field, but he did speak of Solomon in all his glory. You remember how the Queen of Sheba had heard about his pain, and she took a long journey, and when she got there, she said to him, Behold, the half was not told me. And I think that is symbolical too. One of the features which I think is a mark of the other side of the story where Solomon is seen in the uh, bad light. We are told that in one year 
the revenue in the days of Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. 666. And I do remember being very thrilled in connection with that little statement many years ago in the British Museum. Now in the British Museum you expect to find the highbrow type. Not the simple believer, but the rather uh, supercilious fact. And I just happened to be speaking to one of the uh, officials in the British Museum and he said, you know, I, I've had a wonderful thought about Solomon. I said, have you? What is it? I thought, this is good. He said, you know, because he planned and plotted and schemed, he got 666 talents of gold. But if he left it to the Lord, he'd have got 777. I thought, that's fine, isn't it? For a man who's got all that vast... And he said, I've learned another lesson too in the book of Daniel. Ooh, better still. Because most highbrow people haven't got any room for Daniel at all, but he is an official of the British Museum learning lessons from it. You see? He said, I've learned this. That if I belong to God, then a king like Nebuchadnezzar might want to take my life, and he can't, because he put three men in the fire, and it never touched them. And he says, if I belong to God, and I'm under a king like the, the uh, king of the Medes and Persians, he wanted to save Daniel's life, and he couldn't. So he said, what's it matter? One king wants to kill you, and he can't, and one man wants to save you, and he can't. It all depends on whether you belong to the Lord. I'd almost said hallelujah in the great halls of the British Museum. Isn't that fine? So we're glad that even in these high places there are the true humility of those who are simple believers. Well, I wanted to just sketch out before you these things. You'll see a few there. The King of Kings we've touched upon. The Dominion, Psalm 72. The people in multitude like the dust of the earth. The Sheba, the dwelling in safety, 1 Kings 4.25, and peace was characteristic of his dominion. Shall we just look at the 1 Chronicles 22.9, uh, where it speaks about this question, characteristic word, peace. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest. See, in contrast to a man of war. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his day. Well, all I wanted to do this evening was not to elaborate this and take it too far, but to suggest to you that we have in these three kings types that we do well to keep in our mind when we are dealing with this great book of the Revelation. We have the anti-Christian king of Revelation 13. We have the Davidic kingdom of the millennium, where there's a good deal of war and rule and uh, an element of rebellion at the end. And then we have a succeeding kingdom, the day of God, which goes right on, for he must reign to be put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So that takes you right to the very end of time. The book of the Revelation doesn't go to the end of the ages. It's got its own limits. The one passage in the New Testament that goes to the extreme end is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 28. And I hope we've got time to just turn to that passage and read it together to, as it were, bring this 
series to that great climax. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign. Till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now that seems to be the last word in Scripture concerning the goal of God and the end of the ages. Uh, beyond that, Scripture doesn't take us. But isn't it good to know that there is a goal? Take that word, end. Then cometh the end. That doesn't mean a cessation, like cutting a thing off. It means a goal to which you press. This word telos is practically never used in the sense of coming to a, an end of a thing, but reaching the end of a thing. It enters into the words of Christ on the cross where he said, it is finished. It is finished. I've reached the goal. So God at last is here attaining the goal of the ages. Then cometh the end. And at the other, in the close of verse 28, the end is expressed in the words that God may be all in all. And to understand those words, you must go into the other scriptures which use the same expressions. You'll find them used of the members of the body and the head, each one of them functioning, but all together, as it were, uh, used and energized and associated by their unity under the head. All in all is used in 1 Corinthians 12. You get the church of the one body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all in Ephesians. You get that text in Colossians chapter 3 of the church of the one body where Christ is all and in all. And so we've got that as the last words, not merely a king on a throne, but the Father having received a perfected kingdom that God may be all in all. I can only say the word. Whether we can penetrate them is another thing. But we can keep them in heart and mind. They are before us, as they were before our Lord, and as they were before the God who planned the ages. And then the marvel of it is, he has stooped to give us a share. He doesn't look upon the outward appearance, he looks upon the heart. And when he saw the heart in the first case, it was the same as the heart of everyone else, as Scripture says, dreadfully wicked. But he sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. And here we are, a little company of those who have been redeemed and made members of the body of Christ and looking forward to that day when Christ shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied at this day when he shall hand up that perfect kingdom and God shall be all in all. With those words, let us bring this long series to a conclusion. And may we be thankful 
that there is such a teaching that could be given such a heading, a pleroba, a fullness. All the words satisfied and the words God all in all. They're all involved in this great thought that there is a fullness to which God is pressing. And all the distractions which are indicated by the torn garment, all the things that are divided and spoiled will one day be completely gone. He that sitteth upon the throne, we read in the Revelation, says, Behold, I make all things new. But don't forget that he who sat upon the throne and said, I make all things new, had earlier hung upon a cross and said, It is finished. So it's based upon a work of sacrifice. And so it's not only uh, is it wonderfully true that in 1 Corinthians anywhere we get that passage then come at the end. It's also equally blessedly true that it's embedded in that chapter in Corinthians which deals particularly with Christ, the first fruits, the one risen from the dead.